How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. On the show today, we'll hear surprising stories from Texas. The Lone Star State made its name on oil and gas, but there's more clean energy happening there than many people realize. Texas has more installed wind power by far than any other state. Also claims to be home to the world's largest Earth Day event. My guests today are three Texans who will introduce you to a side of their home that doesn't get a lot of play. Kip Averett is a former chair of the Texas Clean Energy Coalition. He was a Republican state legislator in Texas for nearly 20 years. Stephanie Smith grew up and was educated in Texas, where she worked as a lawyer on energy deals. She's now COO of Greencastle, a startup company that develops clean energy and other projects. When George W. Bush was governor of Texas, he appointed Pat Wood to chair the state's Public Utility Commission. Pat Wood later served in the Bush administration as chair of the federal agency that regulates the flow of electricity across state lines. He currently is a board member of SunPower, a maker of solar cells and panels. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Stephanie Smith, I'd like to begin with you. When you started working in clean energy, uh, what did your dad's friends say about that? It did not go over well. (laughs) I believe hippie tree hugger was used fairly frequently. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing how, uh, I'd say within about a year, um, it was the conversation was uh, was was changing, but it was not well received at the beginning. So you grew up on a ranch uh, near outside of Lubbock, or? yeah, north northwest of Lubbock in Lamb County. Okay, and then you start doing energy deals, and you come back clean energy, and, and does, how does it go over with your family first? <laughs> well, it, they they were sort of scratching their heads because I started off in oil and gas, and uh, no one was quite sure how wind entered the uh, conversation, but um, but you know the wind deal fell in my lap and I was saying it makes a lot of sense. And the first one I did was in Iowa and I, you know, started having the conversation more with my family about, um, how this was actually impacting farmers up there. And, uh, you know, the the first couple of deals happened and I think they were scratching their heads, uh, for their friends who were putting some turbines on their land, uh, in West Texas. And then, like I was saying, it's it's really it, it evolved really quickly because the economics were great for those farmers. We'll get into a little more of that later. Pat Wood, George Governor George Bush looked at you one day and said, "Pat, we like wind." Ninety six. I remember it like yesterday. I was walking out of his office and he told me that, and I leaned back, and I was child of the Reagan Revolution, young little you know yellow tie wearing. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Republican boy and when I just look back at him like you got to be kidding really and uh, he said you heard me get smart on it so we <laughs> over the next two years our utilities had this public consultation thing called the deliberative poll which was actually Perot uh, Ross Perot pioneered this process of 
two-day or three-day consultation back and forth, small group, big group, really good process just uh, on public policy issues. And we did it on what to do about the electric uh, grid in Texas with different groups across Texas. Utilities wanted to sponsor this. And it was at first I thought it was kind of hokey, and then I fell into it. Well, by the time we got to Beaumont, Texas, which is right up the street from my hometown, big refinery center where oil was discovered in 1901, Oh, Gary's outside puffing on a Marlboro Red, and we're talking about renewable energy, and he says, we need some damn clean air. <laughs> and, um, Didn't he come up and amazing. push you in the chest, right? Yeah, kind of right there with a good puff. And I was like, <laughs> you know, it, it, it really is the people speaking. After they get educated on renewable energy and, and energy efficiency, that was the surprise out of that whole process, was how much broad public support after learning the pros and cons of everything People really like this. And the, the poll before and the poll after was dramatically different. So I reported that back to Governor Bush, and he kind of gave me that kind of look you've all seen on TV, like, told you so. <laughs> and um, we got a bill that opened up the power industry, and the rest is history. And part of that was a renewable goal mandate for the state that we're going to hit 2,000 megawatts of wind by 2009. Well, you know, now we're at 18,000. So it's uh, been a big success. Yeah, he did a lot to uh, lay the groundwork for where uh, Texas is today on wind. Uh, Kip Averitt, when you were in the Texas State Senate, you were put in charge of the natural resources. You were put in charge of a clean air effort. uh, And you liked it because you're a CPA, so you could measure it. So tell us about that. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit of of a nerd, I guess you would say. (laughs) Um, And I like to to see results. I like to measure uh, results. And um, you know, so, so many concepts we deal with in public policy are uh, vague concepts with uh, no real way to measure results. But when it comes to clean air, there's a scientific way uh, to measure your results. And uh, so when we uh, uh, enacted policies, we could actually track over time whether or not they were working or not. And our clean air programs happened to be very successful. Um, it, was a, it was a period of time... Uh, Jump forward just a few years from when, what Pat was talking about when uh, George W. was running for president. Uh, the loyal opposition made a, a big point to talk about how dirty the air in Texas was, uh, <clears throat> which was um, historically true, but currently um, uh, maybe maybe not as factual. And, and even since then, uh, yet another miracle in Texas about how clean the air in our non-attainment zones have become over uh, the last uh, 10 and 12 years. So uh, uh, that part of me about like to see uh, uh, results is uh, uh, manifest itself very well in the clean energy world. Greg Wortham is the former mayor of Sweetwater, Texas, and is a huge proponent of wind energy. He says wind could be the economic engine that revitalizes the entire Great Plains region. My name is Greg Wortham. I'm the executive director and founder of the Texas Wind Energy Clearinghouse, and I was the mayor of Sweetwater, Texas uh, from 2007 to 2014. We're the greenest place on the planet. I got 3,000 megawatts of wind in my town. There's no community like the Sweetwater area that creates as much megawatts of green energy as we do. But it's ranchers and farmers who are used to using their land for energy. They've been caring for the same land for families for 100 plus years. And the landowners know how to use their land efficiently for wind and solar and oil and natural gas and cattle and agriculture and crops. There's more landowners who want it 
then can fit into the grid. We have so many new schools, I mean, unlimited new schools and campuses that would have been closed if wind had come along. I'm one of these people who wants red, white, and blue solutions, not red solutions or blue solutions. That's why we got all the chaos we've got, is that people feel like they have to pick a side. I have to be for oil, so I can't be for wind. I have to be for wind, so I can't be for oil. And that's not getting us anywhere. Wind region is up and down the Great Plains. So if you look at it on an electoral map, it's red. 75% of all wind products are in Republican congressional districts. And so we're getting it done at levels that nobody else is getting it done by not sort of having parades about it. If we make a big stink about it or, you know, march about it, the handful of people who could block in the legislature will say, wait a minute, I'm told I don't like that. I should create an, an opposition to that. I should create a bill. We'll stop it. That was Greg Wortham, former mayor of Sweetwater, Texas, and executive director of the Texas Wind Industry Clearinghouse. Uh, Pat Wood, stop it. He's just saying, you know, stop all the fuss and all the partisan fuss, and let's get on with it. Uh, Greg is uh, a force of nature. He, he's his own windmill. He's, uh, <laughs> we love him. He, um, he, he, he rose from nothing and saw this great potential that wasn't being taken advantage of by his city and said, damn it, I'm going to run for mayor. And he won. Just came out of a small town where my mother was born there. But um, that, that politics thing is, it tends to, I think people who like the status quo are real good about creating the strife. And I think in this particular industry, you've got incumbents, whether that's utilities or incumbent power generators or whatever, who don't want to, who want to squash renewables. And so they just create these strife and you know, unfortunately, you know, the, our last president was very strongly in favor of renewables. Well, that created a more pronounced backlash than existed during the Bush years. And so it, it was a pretty lonely place to be a, 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 a clean energy supporting Republican for the last eight years because everybody looked at you and said, have you, have you left the reservation? And it's like, no, somebody claimed my reservation. I'm claiming the land back because it's, it's red, white, and blue. I like that answer. I haven't used that. Everybody says purple because red plus blue equals purple, but I like red, white, and blue. I think that works even better. Kip Everett, how about that? that he, uh, we just heard the mayor say that people are told to see, think a certain way, so I, I must be against oil right? Cause, because my people are, and I, you know, I must be against wind because my people are. I, can't we get, how do we get beyond that? Uh, money. Uh, money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what it comes down to, those, those folks, in, you would be hard-pressed to find somebody in Sweetwater, Texas that voted for Barack Obama. You would be hard-pressed to find them. And yet they recognize the value of the, of the resource that's blowing over their, their property and beaming down on their property. Uh, it's an economic uh, issue out in West Texas, which is impoverished, uh, has been impoverished. But this renewable energy surge uh, is bringing it back to life. And you heard him talk about the new schools and the property taxes and stuff like that. That is real-time, tangible results uh, that people can, can feel and see. And in over a period of time, uh, you know, attitudes change. Uh, when I was in office, I would, I would tell folks uh, for 30 and 40 years ago in Texas, if you were uh, ta- concerned about the environment, you were a communist and you could not get elected to public office. Today in Texas, if you're not concerned about the environment, you're a goober and you'll have a very hard time getting elected to public office. Times have changed. Uh, soccer moms want their kids to play in clean air 
and have clean water and they pay attention and the business community recognizes economic value um, and uh, the, uh, <coughs> the, the, the tangibility of what was once a foreign concept, an Austin hippie mm-hmm. thing, uh, is taking hold and people are seeing great benefit from it and changing attitudes. So Stephanie Smith, you described some of your, uh, your dad was a rancher, some of the friends and neighbors went through this transition. Uh, was it really hard for them or it's like, hey, I can put wind turbines on my land and get free money? Yeah, I think it was just hard for the first couple of them, and I okay. salute them because it had to be brave. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, I think Kip's right. It's, it's money. It's practicality. We're talking about an area that has a lot of dry land farming and has gone through a very serious drought, which we know a lot about here in California as well. Um, I think a lot of these farmers, this has kept them afloat, full stop. So I think there's... Um, politics only restrict things, I think, so far. And once their friends started telling them how this was working for them, it was easy, I think, to get on board. And I I can't tell you the number of phone calls I got from my dad or friends of my dad asking for me to help them get a turban (laughs) on their property. Right. And uh, we heard the mayor say that there's more people want it that's possible now. sounds like there's more people who want to generate wind and solar. Uh, There's just there's too much of it. How's that working out? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think we've, we've overbuilt, but we're, we're now putting new transmission lines. Um, there's, a, there's a new one that just went into West Texas in the last couple of years, right? I think Which Pat would know better. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and I know a friend of my dad's just was calling me the other day to look at a solar contract because he's about to put a whole bunch of solar on his land up there. So, you know, I think we're, we're creating those solutions. And when you're, these ranchers from Texas call you and say, I want wind or solar, is climate part of it or is all is it all about the money well i think um you know we don't like to talk about it maybe in the same terms uh that that maybe we do uh on the on the the east coast and west coast but at the end of the day you're talking about people who have always been stewards of the land uh that's something that we've all respected we're you know we've grown up on farms and ranches uh out out in the, the places with the best wind and solar resources and so it's it comes naturally it just may not be um, it use, using the same parlance. Sure, and that's, there's big differences, Pat Wood, in terms of the language. You, know, you, you go back and forth between uh, Texas and California. Do you kind of take, put a little, uh, change your language a little bit when you go between the two places? Because there's very different language uh, used in, in those places about what's causing it. <laughs> I learned as a federal, federal regulator during the, during the um, California energy crisis a decade and a half ago, 17 years ago, that they see right through it out here. If you try to speak Californian with this accent, it doesn't work. So you just, <laughs> just talk the same language. Honestly, it, it is a mixture. I think it's, it's like I view climate as a subset of the clean energy resolu- revolution as opposed to the other way around. And I, maybe that's where maybe I'm a little different. But I think that's kind of how it works back where I'm from. Is There are a number of reasons that people come under this umbrella of clean energy, whether it's it's good for our, our farm, it's good for our kids' air, it's good for the climate, it's good for the economy. Um, it's good because it's a geeky thing and everybody likes the new technology, which my kids, that's why they're kind of green, not for any of these other reasons. So there's just a big umbrella that clean energy has benefited from in the last, really, generation. And climate is certainly a very prominent part of that, more here than back home. 
In 2008, Barack Obama and John McCain basically agreed on approach. Cl climate was a concern. It should be addressed through a market mechanism called cap and trade. Mm -hmm. Since that time, the country, the parties have gotten further and further yeah. apart. The public recognition, Republicans and Democrats, has grown, but the parties are further apart. Pat Wood, if, if what we're hearing that this is good, it's economics, it's smart, why is that not reflected in our political, national political conversation? We don't take the time like this Marlboro smoking Gary and Beaumont did to listen to two days of pros and cons on stuff. We don't have the attention span in our country for anything important, and I regret that. I'm thrilled that you're devoting an hour to this here today, but if I could get five minutes of somebody's time in, in, on any issue, it would be important. I mean, I'd love to see, heard Trump today wants to cut the small business tax rate to 15%. All I could think of was, boy, a carbon tax will sure pay for that, won't it? <laughs> um, you know, there are great ways to use the horse trading around. I hope something that could be done, but, um, you know... I, I think, again, there are people out there, and I'm not going to be an anti-crony capitalist, although I think that's a cancer on the nation, but there are a lot of people who benefit from not solving a problem. And so you need to sometimes trace the dollars and the, and the advocates all the way back to, you know, who's the puppet master there. And I think there are plenty of vested interests in the country that don't want to see these things get advanced. Your favorite, you served in the Texas legislature. Is, is that true, that sort of funding of elections? Because uh, there is a dis some people think there is a disconnect between elected officials, what they, what they say, and, and often what their constituents think, and they don't pay a penalty because it's not a top voting concern for voters, right? They vote on either social issues uh, or, or pocketbook issues, and the environment and energy doesn't tilt the balance in elections. Is that fair, based on your experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's entirely fair. That's not a that's not a uh, front burner issue in a primary election. I mean, in Texas, all of our uh, uh, elections are decided in March in the, in the uh, primaries. And uh, <clears throat> you're right, the, the, um, the hot button, the red, the red meat Republican issues, the social issues and uh, immigration and sanctuary cities and all of that kind of mm -hmm. thing are what uh, drives the, uh, the elections uh, there and uh, and uh, you know I'm not sure if it's a bad thing or not. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not a real big fan of uh, two primaries deciding who we get to vote for in in November. But um, I'm 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 not sure that it's not a, a bad thing at today in the environment we're in that um, that uh, clean energy is not an issue in the Republican primary uh, because I'm I fear that it would not have the outcome that we would So you want. like the fact that it's not on the political radar agenda so you can fly below and get things done away from politics? You absolutely. Uh, I advise Good everybody. Uh, I advise a lot of folks that, that have business at the Texas legislature on this issue, A, to use the proper terminology and, um, you know, just, just understand. You have to understand where the members are. Uh, our, our best friends in clean energy are the rural Republicans, the, the folks who have wind in their backyard, they understand the value. Um, and, um, and it's spreading. It's kind of, kind of like a fungus or something, but it's spreading to the suburbs and uh, other places where Republicans uh, uh, find their voting strength. Uh, but it's, it's a slower uh, process. And, and, and frankly, you know, the big numbers are in the cities, and um, they, don't, they don't see the economic benefit of... Uh, uh, a plant on their property. 
However, they do, and perhaps there's a better way to communicate this, they do see an economic benefit on their utility bill. Today in Texas, uh, renewable energy is dirt cheap. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a two-year contract that I got off the Internet with a company called Discount Power. Texas is fully open for retail choice, like California had the promise of being until 2000, but, and should be again, I think. Um, but we can shop around for whoever we want and pay, uh, pay the price that we negotiate. But my full rate is 7.2 cents a kilowatt hour. That's for generation transmission distribution for a two-year 100% renewable contract. And if I got a non-renewable contract, I think it'd be either a tenth of a cent more or a tenth of a cent less. Mm. But um, I was paying over 10 cents when it was regu- when I was a regulator. I was paying 10 cents for the companies I regulated. And now, 15 years later, it's you know, 25, 30% lower than it had been. So I, it, it is, it, it's how you speak to people. You're right. Just let them look at the outcomes of the facts and then you know, forget the politicians, forget the utilities, just have the customer and the supplier meet right in the marketplace. I love that solution. I think that's a way to depoliticize it is you know, deregulate the industry to where customers can vote with their dollars. Because customers, even in my state, are a hell of a lot greener than the government and the utilities ever will be. And I think that's probably true in California. From what I understand, people's preferences here are very much toward a cleaner, greener environment. And your government has been responsive, but it's just been expensive to do it that way. But um, I, I just, again, the deregulation of the marketplace is, I think, a helpful way to depoliticize some of this stuff. So you've just, uh, Pat Wood and Kip Averett, you've just described a quiet revolution in rural America going toward clean energy. Is that uh, confined to Texas? Is it happening in other red states, Pat Wood? Iowa, Iowa I think, is... Right behind us, and there's not as many people now as there are in Texas. So they're 40, 30 or forty percent of their kilowatt hours are, are went that whole middle area from really Manitoba, Saskatchewan down to probably north half of Texas is just the Saudi Arabia wind. There's a lot in North Dakota all the way down through the states in mountain ranges. Um, then you get solar, of course, over toward here. In this southwestern quadrant of our continent, in northern Mexico as well, you get a lot of solar. All these areas are rural. I mean, the, the cities aren't where, it, you know, you could put rooftop panels. And I saw a few on the plane when I came in here today. It's great to see. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the central part of the nation, which is, interestingly, the very red map on the election night, but um, is, very, is very much where this wind uh, and increasingly now solar energy is coming from. Kip Averett, this is going to... Uh hurt the financial results of some utilities, some people. Who's pushing back against this? Well, yeah, sure. Every, uh, anytime you have a winner, you have a loser. And um, in our state, the coal, the coal plants are uh, shuttering. Uh, we expect uh, up to 60% of the coal plants could shutter by 2022, which uh, is good news and, and bad news. That creates reliability concerns. But uh, studies done show that Texas is thanks to uh, leadership, past and, and current, uh, capable of uh, handling those reliability issues. But it's the coal sector uh, that's getting uh, edged out by natural gas and renewables in our, in our state. 
Stephanie Smith, I want to talk uh, about some of the, the impacts of, of climate that are happening in, in Texas. And uh, your dad sold his cattle herd in part because he was concerned about water. So tell us about that decision and what that means. Yeah, and I, I think he wasn't alone. I mean, that water is, uh, you know, the next, I guess, biggest thing that we have got to address. Um, and it's not, you know, it's farming and it's ranching. Um, and And a lot of I think a lot of ranchers sold their herds, especially in this last drought, because they weren't able to, you know, have enough to graze them. So we're, we're going to have to um, to think through that. And and the same with, the, you know, for farming as well. He did both. And, um, you know, we, we've got to pump the water up if you're irrigating, and that, that both costs money from an electric, electricity cost standpoint, um, you know, and, and just... That, so that impacts them again, um, the farmers. And was there a climate connection? Uh, yeah, I remember interviewing Boone Pickens here on this stage. We, we got to water, and that kind of like, oh, this is where I, you know, <laughs> uh, this is where uh, it gets, you know, visual and visible, the climate impact. But did people connect climate and the drought? I think, again, it's different words, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what you guys think about this, but I, I think it's, it, it's very much the fact that they see it's happening and they want to they want to do something to improve the situation right now whether they're going to agree with me on the idea that this is caused by um, climate change that we should address by throwing a lot of dollars behind from a federal government standpoint probably not but um, you know I think we're going to agree if we talk about different things that we can do today um, to improve the situation on the land and the farming um, and the water conservation Pat Wood, we've in California and in Texas, we've gone through too little water and and too much. There's been times in uh, in Texas where 19 inches of rain have fallen in 24 hours, and the turn rain bombs. It just overwhelms the municipal systems. Yep. And we've had this. <clears throat> California went through the worst flood, the worst drought in a thousand years. And this last year, we have tremendous amount of rain and erosion and flood going on. So this is exactly what scientists predict going from volatile extremes of too much, the dries get drier, the wets get wetter. Um, how is Texas dealing with this? Well, the water issues are, are primarily uh, a dry west, and I live on the coast in Houston, so we're pretty, we're the 19 inches. That was uh, back before I lived there, but um, they're just now finishing all the remediation, these humongous culverts that are 20 feet below the street to handle all the rain, so there's storage. But I mean, you're just you just plan ahead for it's you know it's hurricane issues too. I mean, it can either come in from the Gulf or come down from the sky. But you know, so the the the, the coast is wet. The inland, where all the wind is, although there's more and more coastal wind, that's a separate issue. But the inland has always been relatively arid. But it really was dramatic. I think what Stephanie was talking about, what her family went through, it was very arid back 2011. Houston had no rain for 90 days. A lot of people woke up then and began to think, oh, something's going on here. Of course, then it all rains again. Everybody forgets it. That's, it's the short-termism right. that I think is the biggest, probably the largest problem for this particular issue to stay on the front burner is that it will change. And people go, like yesterday, I was at a soccer game for my kids, and some gal next to me was from county next door, and she said, Honey, if this is climate change, sign me up. Because it was a gorgeous day. It was, you know, clover blooming in the field. And I just <laughs> kind of smiled a wan smile and just move on, you know. Hey, yeah. great goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not going to change her 
her mind. If you're just joining us, that's Pat Wood, former energy regular under George, President George W. Bush. We also have Stephanie Smith, a clean energy entrepreneur, and Kip Averett, former Texas state senator. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're going to go to our lightning round. Uh, brief questions and brief answers. We're going to start with association, and I'm going to mention a noun, and you're going to tell me the first thing that pops into your mind, unfiltered, uh, uh, and one, one, or, one word or one phrase answer. And uh, Pat Wood, Berkeley. <laughs> my, gr- my great-grandmother sister went there to college. I have to thank Ann Alma. Sorry. Okay, I know, you, I know you want me to say Ann Coulter, but I'm not going to do it. So. <laughs> you can say Ann Coulter. Uh, Stephanie Smith, Enron. Ooh, um, the core uh, beginning of the clean energy industry. Kip Averett, Jerry Brown. Crazy man. <laughs> <laughs> Pat Wood, hydrogen-powered cars. Non-starter. Uh, Kip Averett, robotic cars. Thing of the future. Stephanie Smith, men in the energy business. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> uh, let's, let's see. Uh, too many, but getting to equality. <laughs> <laughs> You're outnumbered. <laughs> uh, okay, this is true or false. Stephanie Smith, your mother forbids you and your father from talking about climate change. True. Uh, True or false, Pat Wood, you get invited to fewer cocktail parties in Texas since you got involved in clean energy. True. Kip Everett, true or false, fossil fuel executives who deceive the public by hiding climate facts should be held accountable. True. Stephanie Smith, you sometimes hide your Texas roots and accent now that you live in California. True. Pat Wood, true or false, President Obama did a good job getting the U.S. economy out of the Great Recession. I'll say true. Stephanie Smith, true or false, if you owned an oceanfront home, you would sell it soon. True. Sea level rise. Uh, Kip Averett, true or false, all elected officials run scared. True. (laughs) Last question. Uh, Pat Wood, who spends his time between Texas and California. True or false, Pat Wood? Californians are better lovers than Texans. <laughs> well, I'm married to Texans, so false. Okay, there we go. Let's give them a round for getting through that lightning round. Let's give them a round. <laughs> and now, here's a Climate One Minute. During his three terms as governor of Texas, Rick Perry was credited with jumpstarting that state's renewable energy industry in contrast with most of his party leaders. When he visited Climate One in 2014, Perry was asked how, in rejecting climate science, the GOP could ever be brought on board with the clean energy economy. Perry's response? That innovation is more important than ideology. There are really two questions out there. One is, you know, is is the climate changing? If the climate's changing, why is it changing? And if man's engagement is the reason it's occurring, then we need to have the solutions to that. If it's not, then everything's going to be fine. But if it is, we need to be able to have the answers to that. And my great concern is that policies that are put in place in Washington, D.C., that 
can strangle the economy of this country, jeopardize our ability to innovate. America has always been about creating innovations to address challenges that we have. And then we sell those innovations around the world. That's our role. And we cannot do it if we strangle our economy, if we put our economy in jeopardy. So for me, that's substantially a a bigger place for us to spend our time and effort rather than trying to divide this country into, you know, you're wrong and you're right or vice versa. Former Texas Governor Rick Perry, now serving as U.S. Secretary of Energy. He spoke with Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Let's talk about the jobs, because uh, we haven't talked quite about the jobs impacts. Pat Wood, uh, we talk about anecdotally ranchers who are putting you know, solar or wind on, on their farms. W- where are the green jobs in Texas? Because ultimately that's what Americans care about. West Texas uh, has a, a big university in Lubbock is Texas Tech, and they have a, a full program now that has various aspects of renewable en- uh, energy from finance to engineering to operations. And it's a Big, it's a big certificate. I've actually spoken in one of their programs. And um, so the, the, the jobs that come from that are not only in construction. Construction, like anything else, comes and then it's finite and then it ends. It's the operation and maintenance. The bad thing for jobs is windmills are pretty damn efficient. They need to be cleaned and oiled and checked every now and again. But it's not like running a coal plant. Same thing with solar panels. Uh, yet if it doesn't rain too often, you need to dust them off. But we even have a robotic thing that does that. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, the, the jobs in that maintenance are actually, um, they're more streamlined than they are on coal and nuclear plants, which would be the most labor-intensive. Gas plants, hit or miss. Some of the newer ones are pretty well and pretty efficient. But the jobs are there. I mean, if you've got 19,000 megawatts of, of wind now, well, 18 and plus about one, mega, one gigawatt of solar, um, what that, does that, that mean? How, how many, I, don't know, I don't know what a megawatt is. Well, all of Texas, on, a, on the hottest day of last year, all of Texas used 65 gigawatts of power at, at, the, at the peak hour. So 19 out of that is renewable. So that was Third, basically yeah. zero when I, was, when I left my job in 2001. So it's come in a hurry. Um, big welcome at went out. Good legislators that, from both parties that kicked the door open and said, come on in, and they did. Um, that the jobs, you know, the jobs have been consistent because the growth has been in the construction side. I've been involved in expanding the transmission grid. So the grid went up through Stephanie's home county, and above there was the sweet spot of wind, Amarillo, Lubbock. That area kind of north in the little panhandle part of Texas is the sweetest wind spot in our state. We expanded the grid to pull that in. So a lot of towers are going on that. That was the $7 billion investment just in the transmission grid. Now, California has made some investments in their wind, Tehachapi being a good example, south of here, um, over the past 10 years as well. So there's a lot of good stuff on the infrastructure front that y'all are doing in other states as well uh, to enhance this. But those jobs are, you know, those are good, solid-paying, you know, construction jobs that require financing to get it done. Obviously, you can't pay for this stuff with trading stamps. you got to get it done uh, correctly. But... The ongoing maintenance, obviously, is, is, a, is really the sustainable jobs here. So maintaining the power plants, the power lines, 
is the same as it ever was. It's just in a different part of the state. Kip Averitt, is can someone who lost their oil and gas job get a job in wind or solar? Yes, as, as a matter of fact, there are uh, some really good examples of uh, folks in the manufacturing sector in our state that uh, once produced a widget for uh, the oil and gas industry or that are now producing widgets for the wind industry. And um, you, you see that uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, there, there's 31, last year there were 31,000 jobs in Texas uh, in the renewable uh, energy sector and and growing so the jobs are there the companies are there there you know we were visiting earlier uh when when the first wind farm started coming to to texas they were we were importing everything everything was made in germany or Mm. uh some other state and um uh folks in uh, texas entrepreneurial state folks saw opportunity to make money and now they're Five six hundred companies that are doing uh, uh, their daily business in the renewable energy field, and uh, it's growing uh, uh, quite steadily. We're talking about clean energy in Texas at Climate One. My guests today are Stephanie Smith, a clean energy entrepreneur; Kip Averett, former legislator in Texas; and Pat Wood, who's a board member of the solar company Sun Power. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, I want to talk about fracking. That's something that's, that's happening a lot, technology. Um, it's powering a lot of uh, natural gas. It's driving electricity. Pat Wood you used to be in charge of the, the agency that regulates that nationwide. Um, is that going to continue, and can renewables actually compete with natural gas at some point? They get cheap enough? Well, the game now is renewables and gas. I mean, coal, nuclear, and I think even large-scale hydro are just sitting on, they're they're in the history books. I mean, they're they're looking on and, you know, still around. But based on large, it's it's, uh, gas, wind, and solar. There'll probably be some other renewables that develop over the years ahead. Storage is a big one to come in as well. But fracking, you know, I've said publicly elsewhere, it's a gift from God. I mean, we really have been benefited by... Uh, it's curiously enough the same tax credit that's used to to subsidize wind today. Section 29 was used back when I was a young engineer to subsidize gas production in tight sands or shale formations, and that's exactly what fracking did: was te- changing into horizontal drilling and then using um, dynamite and other explosives to frac fractionate the. Uh, substrata of the land, you know, a mile below the surface and get out all this entrapped gas. That that has been probably for me as an energy guy, that one technology has been probably the most significant event in this industry in my lifetime. And it's one that we'll look back. And the, the impact on renewables has been mixed. Good in that it kind of knocked coal out of the picture. So coal's <clears throat> out of the picture. Uh, tough in that it drops the, the headroom for renewables. When gas was at 5 or $6 a, a unit, but it's really trading at about 2 or 3 now, when it was high, then that gave some headroom for the renewables that were a little more expensive to still make money. Well, now that that headroom's come down, that, head, that uh, profit opportunity's kind of shrunk. But that has helped renewables for the long term because it has forced renewable energy, wind and solar in particular, to come down in cost, to compete, to stay alive, to continue this um, engagement with the economy that that started 25 years ago in earnest, really, in this state of California. But it's it's tight. So it it means that 
I think the renewable innovation has been tough because when you have headroom, you can do things like solar thermal and try the, some of these new technologies that were starting to flourish in 09 and 08 and 07. It's all now about silicon, and you know that's the only solar because it's tested and true, and that's what's going forward now. So it's been a mixed bag. It's been it's forced the industry, the renewable industry, to grow up and be competitive. But it's also taken that kind of easy profit opportunity that was existing in the early days away. Your favorite, a lot of people concerned about water, groundwater contamination from fracking. And, this, and that there's a lot of benefits of, of fracking uh, if you're not, but if you're close to a place where it's happening on your land or in your aquifer. So what's being done to, to protect groundwater that has been shown to you know, leak into wells, et cetera? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> You know that that that's a that, that is a very tricky issue, and in, in the in the the problem is not all groundwater was created equal. Uh, groundwater uh, depend it depends on the the uh, the structures underneath the ground, the layers of uh, soil and clay and sand and and the things that the uh, uh, make up the area uh, that the aquifer is located in. In Pennsylvania, for example. Um, it's a lot easier to contaminate an aquifer by uh, the way they drill there and by, because of the way their uh, uh, layers are uh, uh, fixated. In Texas, um, there, has been, there have been complaints about it um, uh, contaminating groundwater, but uh, I've never seen substantial evidence that it's a, a, a major problem in our state. I'm not saying it's not a major problem in Pennsylvania and perhaps here in California, uh, but um, in, in our state, uh, it's it's a one one thing that we have in Texas. We're an energy state. We have been for a long time. We've been an oil and gas state for 150 years. Over that period of time, we've gotten pretty good at um, uh, regulating the process to make sure that it's uh, as environmentally friendly as the system will allow. Uh, and when I say that, it, it can always be better. But um, I've not seen in our state problems with groundwater and uh, hydraulic fracturing. There has been EPA studies that have correlated uh, low birth weight near fracking in Pennsylvania, as you mentioned, and elsewhere. Lots still to be studied. Stephanie Smith, uh, let's talk about data centers uh, here in Silicon Valley. We all live in the cloud these days. A lot of our lives are increasingly in the cloud. Is it getting cleaner? Absolutely. Um, I think you've got a lot of interest from the companies, especially the ones out here, because they want to be leaders in this in sustainability and in being green, you know, corporate good corporate citizens. I think also it's it's simply cost in many cases. It's cheaper to go ahead and build some generation. Uh, a lot of these data centers are in areas that are that are a good resource um, to to use either wind or solar, and I definitely think it's um, it's part of building most data centers these days is that we're looking at what's the solution we're going to use to provide it's huge amounts of power the load is is just massive and um and nice and steady so it's it's a it's a great opportunity and one that is definitely just it's part of the conversation Pat Wood, we have a Secretary of Energy that came from Texas. When I interviewed Rick Perry a couple years ago, he was bragging about how much wind he got to, brought to Texas. He wasn't on the front lines. What can we expect from him as Secretary of Energy? Well, he did, he did a phenomenal job, really. I mean, I would say we, we, we benefited from 20 years of Bush slash Perry, which is 
remarkably consistent in, in the energy policy that supported the competitive market, supported the expansion of the renewable market, the expansion of the grid. All those things were really under two men for 20 years, which we haven't ever had that kind of company. Brave of you to say that in San Francisco, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, he was a good guy. I, I think he'll be a thoughtful uh, Secretary of Energy. He's already asking questions to try to understand better some of the things that are on the bully pulpit. Um, and he'll be, uh, he'll be vocal. Um, he understands. He comes from West Texas like Bush did, understands wind, energy, solar, those were just things you grew up with, and to see your neighbors and people like Stephanie's family making money off of that, it, it's just no different than if, you know, I always said in the 20th century, God gave us uh, resources from under the earth to make money off of, and 21st century it'll be from above the earth. So we'll just same same story, different technique. So. And when he was in California, be, at least last time, he was trying to get Tesla to build a factory, their yeah, battery factory. Yeah, we would have liked to have had that. That would have been nice <laughs> to have had in Texas, but you can't win them all. Got to make sure Teslas get made here in California. Uh, yeah, well, they went ultimately to, to Nevada for Nevada, the ba- battery yeah. factory. Kip Averett, how about the current uh, Republican governor of Texas, Greg Gabbett? Where is he on clean energy? Uh, you know what? Um, when, when I heard Pat, Pat tell a story about get smart on wind, uh, uh, Greg has a, a similar attitude about solar. He's actually a fan of solar. I don't know how he got there. Uh, and I, I don't know how how he's going to push it, but um, um, you know, uh, there's there's progress to be made there. Solar's fixing to have a renaissance in our state, just like wind did, and uh, because of market forces, dropping prices, and things like that. And I don't, and I think you can see uh, expect to see uh, uh, Abbott be helpful. So far, we've been mainly talking about solar and wind displacing coal and other forms of electricity, where it really gets interesting in Texas is when uh, electricity competes with oil for trans- as a transportation fuel. So Kip Averett, is that on the agenda in Texas? It's one thing to knock out some utilities and coal, et cetera. It's another thing to take on big oil and have everyone driving around on, on batteries rather than gasoline. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's going to be a, a, a big deal. And, and like we were saying earlier, when, when we figure out storage, it's going to change the world. And, um, and, and, and the oil and gas industries uh, are probably going to be the loser on that end. But that, you know, that's a long time down the road. And if I were an energy company CEO, I'd be investing heavily in my next generation of uh, energy. And... Um, and a lot of them are, are actually doing that. So. Well, Pat Wood, you're on the board of a company, a solar company that's mm-hmm. 66% owned by a French oil company. Yep. Most oil companies, honestly, have kind of, they put a toe in, they take a toe out. They don't really stay with renewables very long because they don't make as much money on the clean stuff as they do the dirty stuff. Is that the case with Total? Which I will say it uh, quite frankly, no. Total is, uh, their, their toe's in, their foot's in, their knee's in, and they're in there all the way. <laughs> It's, uh, it's been a, a surprisingly good relationship and continues to be. I, uh, I think the European energy companies got the message on clean energy, climate, and those basket of issues. There's a know. split. European uh, yeah. energy the US companies were more did. supportive of the Paris Climate Accord. Mm-hmm. U.S. companies were like, not so fast. We don't think so. That's even changed now uh, more recently since the politics have changed. But Kip Averett just said that this transition with electricity replacing oil would take a long time. Do you think it might? How fast do you think it'll happen? Look well, at how I, fast solar's moved. I have to say, I, I, I like driving an electric car where I live and 
I, I thought it was more of a, just I do it because I'm in the power business. I ought to practice what I preach. But I tell you what, folks, um, you drop those cars down to 30000 bucks like Mr. Musk wants to do, it'll change the world. I think it'll change it fast. Because the it, thing about it is, yes, there's a gas station in you know, every corner of the U.S. Well, there's a plug in every garage in the U.S. too. And if you have a 200-mile battery, you don't need to worry about charging stations all over America. You just drive to work and back, go to your cousins and back, go down fishing and back. You got enough battery to get there. It's just a, it, it is it's fun to just think about where that's going to go. So I, we'll play this back in 10 years and I'll think, God, how parochial we were in thinking about that. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at uh, the technology that's out there. And I think as the cost drops and um, as batteries become more thoughtfully deployed in many uses, I know, Stephanie, you're working on them in your day job too. Um, this whole storage thing, it's, it, you know, we had wind was the first wave on the beach, solar's the second wave, but storage is that wave that looks like a tsunami. And it's going to transform not just our power grid, but uh, our transportation sector. Stephanie Smith, there's a concern, uh, as Kip Aver just referenced, about big energy companies kind of getting stuck. We don't know how fast this is going to happen. There's a term called stranded assets, the idea that companies are putting in refineries or uh, projects 30 years that they might not be uh, you know, as economic as they, as they expect to be. And, and uh, what do you think about that prospect for, for in, uh, stranded assets for energy companies? For uh, more traditional fuels, I think they're they're taking a look at that. I mean, I think I, I work with finance a lot, and and the financeability of a really expensive, you know, capital expenditure to build a huge uh, fossil fuel plant is is something people are really taking a hard look at, at least in the private equity funds that I work with. So I think it's going to become a con- you know continually a bigger issue, and everyone's got their eye on storage right now. I mean that's that's what my company is is focusing on right now, and and certainly I think it's continued to make improvements, and and everyone's trying very hard to push that as fast as possible because everyone sees the possibilities and what this is going to do for renewables as well as electric cars and everything else. Pat Wood, what do you do? And you're, you mentioned you drive an electric car. Do you also invest in electric, uh, you know, solar, et cetera? The, the, sorry to say, the stock for Sun Power is down 60% over the last year. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I pay for my Tesla with buying those shares at 40 bucks, So that's all right. It, you know, it comes and it goes. But, yeah, put, put solar panels on my roof. That's not cost-effective in Houston because I got that 7.2-cent power. But, you know, you have to kind of practice what you preach and use your, use your products. Um, do you invest in fossil fuels in your retirement account? Oh, I'm sure I do. Yes, I have Chevron. Um, I think I've got Exxon Go. But, uh, Kip favorite, yeah. do you invest in fossils or green? Uh, well, I have, a, I have a solar on my house as well, but my retirement account's in a big old giant mutual fund, so I'm sure there's some, there's some fossil fuel in there. We're talking about uh, the future of energy in Texas and California. Elsewhere at Climate One, my guests were Stephanie Smith, a clean energy entrepreneur, Kip Averett, former legislator in Texas, and Pat Wood, a former energy regulator under President George W. Bush. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, my name is Lila Holzman. I'm a native Californian who perhaps counter- counterintuitively went to study environmental engineering at Rice in Houston for four years. Um, <laughs> Some of your comments on how to tweak your language, and I really appreciated that, and the fact that clean energy is this umbrella that has so many benefits aside from climate change. 
And yet at the same time, you know, Texas is on the Gulf Coast where the hurricanes are happening. And as you were talking about the rural areas with agricultural changes and things like that. So I guess my question is, how can the conversation change? And what kinds of um, language can you use to start bringing up climate change? Because I feel like I, I know I tried to be an environmentalist my friends could relate to, so I also toned it down, my, my Californian side. <laughs> but you. how do yeah. you try to get that in there? We'd like to tackle that. Okay, favorite? Yeah, it, it, my opinion is as long as we're going to the same place, as, as long as we, uh, as, uh, the, the folks in California want to talk about climate change and the folks in uh, Texas want to talk about economic development, if we're going to the same place, I don't see, um, I don't really see any reason that we should change the way we talk in Texas as long as we're getting the job done. And I think that you've heard up here that we are in spades getting the job done. And, uh, and the problem is because it's become a politicized issue in the frame, the phrase climate change is uh, not popular in our state. So let's figure out a different way to talk about it and, and get the job done. Stephanie Smith. I think it's a it's a human issue, right? I mean, we're talking about things like people having clean air that so their kids can play on playgrounds and nice places, and you can keep your farm going. I mean, it's it's about it's about like any other conversation, finding things that people care about and speaking to that. It's very easy to do with climate change because there are so many impacts, um, and I, I think it's just about um, you know hearing each other. And I agree with Pat. If we could just have a real conversation about the pros and cons about things. And I think it's about doing that in a way that um, you're connecting with someone um, about how they feel about their environment or their world, because everyone feels something about that. Yeah, that human layer is that, that, yeah. that we're, we're all connected. Let's go to our next question, Climate One. Gary Malazian, uh, you folks make Texas look really good. I'm curious in the little video that was shown, uh, there looks like... There could be a lot more wind towers than there are. And you said that you were overproducing energy. What is the difficulty in transporting that energy to other states that don't have that advantage? Pat Wood. <laughs> well, Texas has, a, and it's a, probably another podcast of its own, the history of ERCOT, <laughs> but Texas's grid, by our reasons of history, was not ever interconnected to states, out, or most of it was not interconnected to states outside the commission, the utility commission down there, though, has gotten applications to actually put some holes in that grid to allow for power to be transported, not just to other states, but to Mexico. Um, that's actually a great uh, place where there's a lot of renewable interest, and uh, we're sending natural gas down there, so why the hell can't we send electricity and green electricity at that? So that actually is moving forward. Those proposals are before the commissions and down there should be approved. That does require Secretary Perry to approve it, which I assume he'll do. But, um, yeah, I think the exportability, uh, we can't continue to add that much wind and just consume it within the state. So it will be exported. Yeah, and so the, the, the question, and, the, the, and, the, and the, to extrapolate that debate to the West, because there's a lot of potential in Wyoming, and I, there's a big famous line that you probably read about in your paper here that, that wants to be, that is trying to be built from Wyoming to bring that wind all the way to California. At some level, although probably not that one, at some level the cost of transport makes it uneconomic. When you could get maybe B-minus wind from, you know, central part of California, that may be more cost-effective for you guys here in San Francisco 
than to get A plus wind over a long transmission line because transmission's not free. It is cheaper usually, you know, in, in those big amounts over that long distance. But still, that, that cost is a real cost. And so you have to kind of think about those two together. Next question. Welcome. Yeah, my name is Phil Keyes and I work for a software company called Intertrust. You mentioned a couple of interesting things. One is about there's a lot of interest in Texas around um, energy storage, and yet you said there's a lot of cost pressure in the market. So I wonder if you could help square those two things and talk a bit more about how you see uh, storage taking up in, especially grid storage in Texas. Pat Wood? I think um, there's interest in it, and and interest ultimately leads to investment but you're right i think there is a there's a tension there because the cost is still high i mean for me i am going to put a tesla powerwall 2.0 on my house we don't have net metering in texas because we're kind of post regulation in, in our in our market model so if you if you generate it you need to consume it and so if i can't consume 10 kilowatts of power in the middle of the day because i'm not there and the kids aren't there then I've got to store it. So I will. But it's not cost-effective here to do that. Again, comparing to 7.2-cent power, it's not going to work. Nonetheless, the need for storage will come, just as, as all these others have done. I just think, uh, quite frankly, and I'll just say this because I think it's good to tell the truth, we're happy to let y'all pay all the R&D costs through your utility <laughs> rates in California so that we can benefit from the second generation on the beach. And that'll be true in storage, too. So thank you very much for y'all's contribution to our state's welfare. You're welcome. We have to wrap up. I want to wrap up by asking uh, Stephanie Smith and others, um, how much can the new Trump administration slow down this progress toward clean energy we've been talking about? I, I'm, I'm always an optimist, but I don't think very much. I mean, the economics are just too compelling, and uh, the number of jobs, and frankly, the bipartisan buy-in in, as a whole, just because of... How, as you've heard today, how many red states are, are positively impacted by this industry? Kid favorite, can the Trump uh, renaissance of fossil, trumpeting fossil fuels slow down the green energy train? Uh, only to the extent that it creates uncertainty, uh, which is, you know, that's, a, that's a, an important factor. But the, the facts are the economics are uh, driving the development of renewable energy. We have to end it there. Uh, we've been talking about green energy in Texas. Uh, our guests were Kip Averett, Republican state legislator, and Stephanie Smith, a Texan who is now running a clean energy startup. We also heard from Pat Wood, who served under Governor and President George W. Bush. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows recorded with a live audience are available wherever you podcast. When you download one, please leave a comment or give us a rating. We want to know what you think about our conversations on energy, food, water, technology, and more. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time, everybody. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.